Amen, friends. If you have a Bible with this morning, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. This morning, we are starting a sermon series through the book of Matthew. And it is my joy and privilege this morning to preach through what Matthew starts his book with, which is a genealogy. A genealogy, a list of names that helps us understand where someone came from and why they're important. But why on earth would I be excited about preaching through a genealogy? That seems to be the most common question I get when people are reading the Old Testament. Like, why all these lists of names? I'm doing good in my Bible reading plan, and then I come upon seven chapters of names. How on earth do I make sense of this? We tend to underappreciate lists of names. Think about movies these days. They end with lists of names, right? No one reads those. If you stay in the theater for the list of names... What are you staying for? You're probably watching a Marvel movie and you're waiting for the bonus scene at the end, right? You don't care. If you're watching it at home, you fast forward to get there, right? Or you look it up on YouTube like I do. You don't care about this list of names that, of everyone that was involved in making this story come to life. Sometimes we watch older movies and remember that they used to make you sit through that list of names at the beginning, Thankfully, directors have learned that you don't start a good story with a list of names. Except Matthew does. Right? Matthew does. I think one of the reasons that we tend to underappreciate lists of names is because we don't feel a personal connection to it. I don't really necessarily care of the names of everybody that went into making a movie. There is one movie where I'll watch the list of names. That's a goofy movie. Because my uncle used to write music for Disney. And he wrote some of the songs in that movie. And so I'm watching the list of names. And all of a sudden, Uncle Pat. And I get excited. Because I have a personal connection to this list. I care about someone in the list. Friends, we have personal connection to the lists of names in the Bible. Because there are history. There are people. If you are part of the people of God, these are your people. We have tremendous connection to this list that Matthew starts with because it is the list of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Not only that, though, if we read through the genealogy, as we read, we'll notice people we recognize. You'll be like me recognizing my Uncle Pat, and you'll say, Ruth, I know that story. We just talked about that a couple months ago. I know the story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi and God's faithfulness. Or you'll recognize the, story, the name of King David and you'll be like, yeah, I know that. We, we recognize it so much that all Matthew has to do is mention the, the wife of Uriah. And we know he's talking about Bathsheba, right? Because this history is our history. These names are our people. This genealogy excites me when I think about preaching it because it's not some boring list of unconnected people that I don't care about. It's the, the list of the history of God's people and of God keeping his promises with his people. When we look at this list and as we look through it, we'll see that there's so much more here than just a boring list of names that we have to sit through. So that's what I want us to go to with that in mind as we think about it. I'm going to read 
Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 in a moment. But before I do, I want to tell you how we're going to approach thinking about this list. Because Matthew starts off the list with three titles. And those three titles are all intimately tied to the list. And they're intimately tied to who Jesus is. We see in verse 1, Matthew says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You can probably see at least two of the titles, right? Son of Abraham, son of David. Christ is the third one. That's not just Jesus' last name. That's a title, Messiah. What we're going to do is we're going to see how Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the son of Abraham. And what that means for who he is to us as God's people. And we're going to see that all through the genealogy. It's not just right here, but the genealogy itself unpacks what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, is the son of David, is the son of Abraham. So with that in mind, let's take a look at this list of names. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nation, and Nation, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Would you pray with me, friends, one more time? Father God, I pray that as we study this together and as we behold Christ as Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Christ, and as the son of David and as the son of Abraham, would you draw us into this story and would you help us to see him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords through whom you are fulfilling all of your promises. I pray that you would do what you intend to do through your word by your spirit this morning in each one of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things 
will notice as we approach these three titles is that this genealogy seems to end in a, in a, uh, a, a neat way, right? 14 generations between Abraham and David, 14 generations between David and the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations between Babylon and Christ. And you might think, wow, that's, a, that's, that's amazing that God orchestrated 14 generations. If you actually look up this genealogy and, and pay attention to Old Testament lists of names, there's more than 14 people between, for example, David and the deportation to Babylon. Matthew skips names. And this might throw us off a little bit if we're thinking of this just as a list of names. But again, this is telling us a story of the history of God's people. And Matthew is intentionally selective in the names he's picking. Which will help us understand what he's trying to get across. He's not just trying to tell us Jesus' biological descent. Notice it's not even biological descent, right? Jesus was born of Mary. Joseph didn't have biology to do with it. But Joseph, we'll see in the next portion of Matthew, Joseph, the son of David, adopt, David, or adopt Jesus into this line of David. And so Matthew is recording selectively Joseph's legal ancestors, helping us see how Jesus is the inheritor of all these promises. And so we're going to see that starting with Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus as the Messiah. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, might be how we could translate that rightly. This Messiah is not just a last name, but is a title, means anointed one. And it's rooted in a promise in the Old Testament that God made to his people. Many, many promises, but kind of a, a, a thread of promise throughout the Old Testament. One of the places we see that thread is in Isaiah chapter 61. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 3. He says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. Now, when Isaiah says that, he's not talking as just the prophet Isaiah. He's speaking in the voice of this promised servant. Remember, we saw that two weeks ago when we looked at Isaiah 52 and 53, that there's this servant who's going to suffer for the sake of redeeming God's people. And Isaiah is speaking in his voice. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. What Isaiah is saying there is that there is someday going to come this spirit anointed servant of God who's going to restore God's people, bring them this gladness, replace their, 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 their mourning with gladness because God has restored his people Israel. This promise was carried through in other places in the Old Testament and then through the intertestamental period, the period between when God stopped speaking through his prophets and when Jesus came about 400 years. During this period, this longing for a Messiah 
grew and grew as God's people reflected on his promises in the Old Testament. It grew into an expectation that one day a a royal deliverer would come and would free God's people from oppression under foreign rulers and would restore the kingdom of Israel. And into all of this came Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the God's anointed one carrying his spirit. In Luke, Jesus reads this chapter of Isaiah in the synagogue and says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is what's happening now through me. Matthew knows that and he picks it up by starting this genealogy with the title of Jesus as the Christ or Jesus as the Messiah. What Matthew is showing us though, we normally think of Messiah as the one who comes to save. And that's true. But Matthew is unpacking even more of what that means as he starts his book with Jesus the Messiah. As the Messiah, Jesus himself is bringing a new beginning. And Matthew wants to make this really clear in how he phrases his words here. Notice this book starts the book of the genealogy. And it's not just a title for this section. It's not just telling you, here comes a list of names. In Greek, this is biblios, uh, geneseos, excuse me, geneseos. It's the start of the book of Genesis. And in Genesis 2.4 and Genesis 5.1, we have these same words. Biblios Geneseos. This book of the Genesis or book of the beginning. And what happens in Genesis 2.4? What is that telling us the beginning of? It's saying these are the generations of when God created the heavens and the earth. This is the Genesis of the heavens and the earth. And in Genesis 5.1, what is that a list of? These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of mankind. This is the book of the Genesis of mankind. In other words, what Matthew is doing by starting his book, by, by starting his, his gospel according to Matthew with Biblios Geneseos, he's saying this is the start of a new beginning. Similar to how John starts his gospel, in the beginning was the word, right? He says in the beginning on purpose so that it triggers in our minds going back to Genesis 1. Matthew is trying to get us to go back to Genesis 2 and Genesis 5 and say God is doing something new here. Through this Messiah, God is bringing a new beginning. God's people desperately needed a new beginning during this time. Think about the the shape of these stories. Many of these people you might not know, and that's okay. I bet you know some of them. The genealogy starts in verse 2, right? Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, was the father of Jacob. This is the story in Genesis, and we know that God's people are starting to learn what it looks like to follow him. As we follow through this story, we see examples of faithfulness when we think about even uh, women like Rahab or like Ruth, who we studied before. All of this leads up to David the king. So if we were to, if we were to map verses 2 to 6, we might map it like an arrow going upwards. The story, the history of God's people is looking bright. And when David came on the scene as a man after God's own heart, the anointed king chosen by God, guess what God's people thought? All of these promises are coming true. Restoration is here. We've made it. This is the one we've been waiting for since Adam and Eve first sinned, since God first made promises to Abraham. But we see in this generation, if you look at the second half of verse 6, 
there's, there's a little bit of an oops, right? David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. If you know your Old Testament, that's enough to let you know that the way David fathered Solomon was by, was by stealing the wife of Uriah. And then by trying to convince him to cover up that theft. And then by murdering him when he wouldn't. And then by being called out by the prophet Nathan. David fathered Solomon from his union with Bathsheba. And David, even the hope of Israel, the one that seemed like he was going to bring all of these promises to pass, shows himself to be still a sinful man. After David came Solomon. And Solomon was faithful for a while. Wise even wrote many of the Proverbs in our Old Testament. But even Solomon chose to pursue the pleasures of this world rather than God in the end. He, he did the exact opposite of what God said Israel at kings were to do. God said, don't accumulate many wives. Don't accumulate many horses and chariots. Don't accumulate a lot of money. What did Solomon do? A lot of money, a lot of wives, a lot of horses and chariots. After Solomon, what happened? We had guys like Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a Jewish king, king of Judah, who taxed his people so harshly to try to show how much better he was than his father Solomon that it caused the whole kingdom to split in two. And if you read the story of kings, after Rehoboam, you have these parallel kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south, and they're at war with one another. God's people are divided. And you follow the story of kings and you see king after king who is wicked and evil. The rulers of Israel. If we were to map this trajectory from verse 6, the middle of verse 6, to verse 11, the deportation to Babylon, the Babylonian exile, it would be a big downward arrow. Right? The trajectory of God's people is going up and then it peaks at David and then it just crashes and burns really drastically, until it gets so bad that God's people are sent into a foreign land to live under foreign kings because they're so wicked they're being judged. Not looking good for the promises of God. But after that, what happens? In exile, God sustains his people and he restores them through King Cyrus and they rebuild the temple. And there's this progression and this waiting for God to fulfill all his promises to restore them. There's an upward trajectory. And where in Matthew's genealogy does that upward trajectory climax? It climaxes at Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the one who is here to restore his people and give them this new beginning. There is an end shape, if you will, to this history. And God's people desperately need this new beginning and this restoration that the Messiah is bringing. Isaiah 61 talked about the year of the Lord's favor as being this time when God would restore his people. And it's very likely that Matthew is alluding to that in his genealogy when he talks about these 14 generations. Even just counting, the 14s don't quite line up unless you count a few people twice. And Matthew's okay with that. He's not really perturbed by that. But what he's trying to say is there's this pattern to history. If we look at it, this 14 Pattern, 14, 14, 14, three groups of 14. In Hebrew scriptures, they would often do this with numbers. What Matthew may be trying to do, and I think it's likely he's alluding to this, is he's alluding to three groups of 14, or what would commonly be referred to as six groups of seven. 
That may not mean anything to you, and that's okay. That's obscure from the Old Testament, but it's really important to this. Because God established in creation that he would work through patterns of six plus one, right? Patterns of seven. And in the life of God's people, there would be these recurring groups of seven, even. Every seven sets of seven would lead to a year of jubilee. A year of rejoicing, a year of God's favor, a year of setting free those who were enslaved. And here we have Matthew saying, you know what? There's been these six groups of seven throughout the history of God's people. And guess what? Now Jesus is here as the start of a new jubilee. A start of a super jubilee. A start of bringing restoration to God's people as the Messiah that they've all been waiting for. Matthew's going to show us all through his book what that looks like. Because God's people had certain expectations for what this new beginning would be. And some of those expectations were accurate, but many of them weren't. As we see the story of Jesus in the book of Matthew, we're going to see exactly what kind of new beginning the Messiah brings. We're going to see particularly that he's going to bring a new beginning to God's people. He's going to relaunch what it means to be the people of God. Jesus himself is going to show that he is himself the true Israel, the true son of God, the true people of God, and that everyone in him is this true people of God. And he's starting that as a new beginning. We're going to see as well as we go through Matthew how the Messiah is going to accomplish this new beginning. God's people thought at the time that it was going to be accomplished through military might, throwing off the rule of the Romans. And we're going to see through Matthew that as Jesus unpacks what it means to be the Messiah, the anointed one of God, that it's going to involve much more suffering than God's people thought. That it's going to involve actually dying. And we're going to see that as we go, that that is the way that Jesus, the Messiah, brings this new beginning is ultimately by dying for his people. Matthew is setting all of that up right here so that as we go through, we think in those terms. We think in those categories. The second title that he gives is Son of David. Look at verse 1 again. The book of the genealogy, or the book of the Genesis, of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. The Son of David. Second title, the Son of David. Jesus is the Son of David. I've said before that this is a selective genealogy. One of the things that Matthew is trying to portray in this genealogy is that Jesus is the heir to the throne of David. Jesus is the son of David in this sense. The, he does this through a couple ways. One is that you'll notice, you might have recognized some names of kings, particularly Solomon, right, as a king. Solomon is not labeled a king. Rehoboam is not labeled a king. Uzziah is not labeled a king. Hezekiah is not labeled a king. There's only one king in this entire list that includes many kings that's actually labeled as a king. We see it in verse 6, right? Jesse, the father of David, the king. Anomalies in this genealogy, as you notice as we read it, right? It's the father of, father of father of it just kind of goes into this repetitive pattern and when that pattern is broken that's a big deal and matthew breaking that pattern to label david the king shows that that's an emphasis of his as he talks about jesus jesus is this son of david it's even emphasized in the structure there's another possible explanation for the pattern of 14s 
I happen to think they're both true because I think Matthew can do multiple things with numbers. One of the common things that happens with numbers in the Hebrew scriptures particularly is having letters stand for numbers. And the letters of the name of David, Dalit Vav Dalit, add up to 14 in the Hebrew, which Matthew would have known as a good Jewish boy. And David, being the number 14, is mentioned exactly three times in the frame of this genealogy. Right? Verse 1, the son of David. Verse 17, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So here you have a name that adds up to 14 that's mentioned three times, and Matthew makes this big important point about dividing the history of Israel into three pieces. I think all of that is a giant neon flashing sign to say, son of David, David is really important, and guess what? His offspring is here. Why is that so important, though, to God's people? Matthew mentions Jesus as the son of David 10 times out of, I think, 14 total in all the Gospels. So it's really important to Matthew that Jesus is the son of David. Why is that so important? It's because of the promises, again, that God made to his people through King David. Listen to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 7, 10 to 16. This is the prophet Nathanael speaking on behalf of God to David. God says, I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is to King David again. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made secure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Amen. We see in this promise, the way Old Testament promises tended to work, where you have kind of a near fulfillment of this promise. God does raise up a son of David, King Solomon, who builds God's house, the temple. And Solomon does indeed commit iniquity, and God does indeed punish him with his rod. Right? So not every aspect of this is directly related to Christ, right? Christ did not commit any sin. God did not need to punish him with his rod. And yet, after all of these shadows of kings, all of these kings that are perpetuating the throne of David, there comes this one true son of David who is perfectly sinless and who is eternal. And he comes and sits on this throne of David and establishes this kingdom forever. What Matthew is telling us by drawing in the language of son of David is that Jesus, as the true son of David, is a forever king. And he's bringing a forever kingdom. Matthew finds this extremely important, so much so that he talks about the kingdom of heaven more than any other gospel. 
The kingdom of heaven is mentioned 31 times in the book of Matthew. The kingdom of God is mentioned an additional five. The gospel is called the gospel of the kingdom. This is dramatic, dramatically important for us to understand what Matthew is trying to show us about who Jesus is and what he did. Jesus is a king and he brought a kingdom. It's so important that that's the title of this sermon series, the king and his kingdom. It's so important that that's the title of this sermon. The king is here. That's Matthew's point. The son of David, the true king who will forever reign and forever sit on this throne and forever rule this kingdom is here. He's come. He's the one that's bringing this kingdom to bear. The rest of Matthew is concerned with what kind of king is this? How does he use his authority? Because Israel had seen terrible kings and some righteous, but even the best kings, kings like David, ultimately failed. Will this king fail too? Will he abuse his people? Matthew is concerned with that question. We'll see repeatedly that Jesus, as the son of David, uses his authority to show mercy to the least and the outcast and to bring healing to God's people, both physical and spiritual. David or Matthew will repeatedly ask, what kind of kingdom is this that the king reigns? We'll see that all through Matthew, we have this ethical teaching, this teaching about what we ought to do in response to this king. And it's teaching us about what the kingdom of heaven is like. We'll see that it's not like what we thought it would be. That the least are actually the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And the greatest will actually be the least. So Jesus is the Messiah bringing this new beginning. And he is the son of David bringing this forever kingdom. And the last title that Matthew uses for Jesus is son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's concerned here with more than just biological descent. He's not just trying to say that, hey, guess what? Jesus is descendant from Abraham. We know this because Matthew makes a big deal in places like John's preaching in chapter 3, where he says, you know what? God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. Biological descent is not the point, guys. What he's trying to say is that Jesus is the son of Abraham as the one who inherits and fulfills the promises that God made to Abraham. If you're familiar with Genesis 12, you know the promises of God to Abraham. But let me read it for us to remind us. God said this in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham was promised by God as someone who was childless and beyond the childbearing years, that he would have a descendant. And that from that descendant would come many descendants, so much that he would be built up into a nation. And that through this people, through these offspring of Abraham, God would bring blessing To all the nations. This is the promise that Matthew is trying to get us to call into mind as we think about Jesus and who he is and what he has come to do. As the true son of Abraham, Jesus is here bringing God's blessing for everyone, bringing God's blessings for all families of the earth. 
Matthew highlights this in his genealogy by the inclusion of four mothers. Right? You might have noticed there's not a ton of mothers listed, but there is a few. We have Tamar. Tamar is listed in verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. And then in verse 5, we have Rahab. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And we have Ruth. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And then we have, at the end of verse 6, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, who we know to be Bathsheba. Why does Matthew include these women and not others? If he was going to write a genealogy of God's people, of like the heroes of the faith, we would think he would include women like Sarah, Abraham's wife, or like Rebecca, or like Rachel, or Leah. They are traditionally included in the lists of the matriarchs of Israel, the mothers of Israel. And yet Matthew doesn't include them. He includes these four women. What do they have in common? They have in common, first of all, that they're all unions of suspect circumstances. Right? If you know the story of Tamar and Judah, then that's enough. You know in Genesis 38, it is not pretty how Tamar becomes pregnant by Judah, her father-in-law, and births Perez and Zerah. If you know the story of Rahab from the book of Joshua, you know that Rahab was a prostitute. If you know the story of Ruth, you know that Ruth, as a Moabite, was the product of the horrible union between Lot and his daughters in Genesis 19. And if you know the story of David and Bathsheba, then that's enough said, right? All of these are suspect circumstances at best. These women are held up as women who acted faithfully in the book of Hebrews. So they're not themselves being disparaged. But all of these unions, all of these children produced, were produced under suspect circumstances. Matthew is paving the way for a young, unwed mother from rural Israel to give birth to someone incredibly important. right? The Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Not only that, though, all of these women, all of these women come from Gentile families. Tamar was a Canaanite. Bad for Israel to marry Canaanites, but they did it. Tamar was a Canaanite. Likewise, Rahab, living in Jericho, was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite, not an Israelite, like she ought to have been. That was part of the scandal. And Uriah himself was a Hittite, and so it's likely that Bathsheba herself was also a Hittite, someone outside of the people of God, a Gentile. What Matthew is showing us is that even in the line of Jesus, even in the family origins of Jesus, even in the progression from Abraham when the promise is given to Jesus when the promise is fulfilled, God is already starting to incorporate these outsiders into the people of God. One commentator puts it this way, I love it. He says, Gentile brides are incorporated into the bride of God, Israel. God is already doing that, which means when Jesus comes and starts doing that, it's not an afterthought. It's not something that just happens in Jesus where now all of a sudden blessing is going to come to everyone. Jesus comes bringing the blessing to everyone in continuity with the mission God is already doing. 
So when we get to the end of Matthew and Matthew and Jesus sends his disciples out to make to make disciples of the nations. This is not Jesus doing something new. This is Jesus sending his disciples out to continue the mission that God has already been doing. And that God has brought now to fruition and climax through Jesus Christ himself. God's plan from the start was to bring universal blessing, blessing to everyone through the offspring of Abraham. And Matthew is saying the offspring of Abraham is here. What we'll see in Matthew, though, is the question repeatedly rise. What does the blessing for everyone mean to Israel? Because a big part of being Israel was God's special blessing on us as his people. How do they relate when God says, you know what, I'm going to bless these people that you think of as dogs? How are they going to relate when God says, I'm going to bless these people that you wouldn't even get a second glance to? What does God's blessing mean for Israel? Matthew also wrestles with what does God's blessing for everyone mean for the outcast and the lowly and those who would not normally be blessed? Think of the story that we'll read about in Matthew towards the end of Matthew where a Gentile woman comes and asks for Jesus' help and he says it's not right to give to the dogs what is for God's people Israel. And she says even the dogs get to eat the crumbs off the table and he marvels at the kind of faith he sees in her. We'll see repeatedly that this blessing for everyone flows out of Jesus to the outcast and the lowly and the weak and the least. Matthew wrestles with these questions as well as how will the son, seed of Abraham, the offspring, bring this promise to bear. What I want us to see though for today, what I want us to think about as we meditate on Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, is that in Jesus, Matthew is saying, God is fulfilling all of his promises. All of his promises that we've seen all the way through the Old Testament. One commentator puts it this way. I love it. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament is trying to say. That's exactly right. That's what Matthew is showing us here. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament is trying to say. The genesis of Jesus, the book of the genealogy, has deep roots in these Old Testament promises. And in Jesus, God is keeping his promise to send a spirit-anointed Messiah who will redeem and restore God's people. In Jesus, God is keeping his promise to establish a forever kingdom where peace with God reigns. Where God's people can be reconciled to him and live with him in joy. In Jesus God is keeping his promise to bless all of the nations through Abraham's offspring and to build a new people of God who are composed of those who bear the fruits of the kingdom. We'll see that repeatedly in Matthew. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament is trying to say. We we marvel at that. We rejoice at that. I want to give you a summary of where we're going with the whole book of Matthew. This is the, my summary of the whole book of the message, the message of Matthew. It will probably adapt and evolve as we go and as I understand the book more, but this is my understanding of the book of Matthew so far. In the book of Matthew, we learn Jesus the Messiah King climactically fulfills the Old Testament by inaugurating the kingdom of heaven through his life, death, and resurrection creating a new redeemed people of God 
and fitting them to follow him in the global mission of God. This is the point of Matthew. This is what he's trying to say. And we notice all of those seeds are here in the genealogy, right? Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who's bringing this restoration. He's the king, the son of David. He's inaugurating a kingdom. He's fulfilling every Old Testament expectation. He's doing this through his life, death, and resurrection. And as he does it, he creates this new redeemed people of God. The true children of Abraham through this son of Abraham. And he fits them to follow him in the global mission of God. To do what? To bring blessing to the nations. That's what's happening in the book of Matthew. And everything we see in the book of Matthew as we go through will contribute to that. Will show us that. Will display that for us. And display for us then how we ought to respond to that. Because that's what Matthew is really concerned about. He's saying this is what Jesus is doing. And then all throughout he asks the question, so what? So what? What's the point? How ought we respond? Reoccurring throughout the book of Matthew are questions like, who is this man? What sort of man is this that he can preach with such authority? What sort of man is this that even the the seas obey him? Who is this man, Jesus of Nazareth? And we'll see throughout three categories of people respond to that question. The leaders of Jerusalem who ultimately reject him and crucify him. And the crowds who follow him for a while but are quickly have their fervor choked out by the cares of the world. And we'll see his disciples struggle to faithfully follow him. Even though they have little faith, we'll see that all the difference is made by Jesus being with his disciples as they follow him. And so friends, that's our question as well. Even starting this morning, how do we respond to this Jesus who is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, inaugurating all these things, fulfilling everything God's people were taught to hope for and expect. We take it for granted because we're just so used to it. But I want us to see it fresh and say, Jesus, we worship you because you have done all of this. So friends, my prayer is that we would do that. Let's pray now and ask God for his help to respond that way. Father, we thank you for keeping all of your magnificent promises to your people, for showing yourself to be trustworthy in sending your son, Jesus. I thank you for the portrait that we have of him in the gospel of Matthew. And I pray that even now, our, the, the, Lord, our, our hearts would be softened to hear of the news of this king. And our minds would be opened to behold him. And our ears would be unstopped to hear of his good news. The gospel of the kingdom. I pray that even now you'd be softening our hearts for what we'll see and hear and behold. As we work slowly through this magnificent portrait. And I pray that as we look at and gaze at Jesus. That we would be changed to be more like him. That we would be made into people fit to inhabit the kingdom and fit to continue your mission of bringing blessing to your creation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.